Hello and welcome back to the James Kennedy Podcast. I hope you've all had a great week and enjoyed this glorious sunshine, also known as the Advancing Climate Catastrophe. And hope you've all been able by now to check out last week's episode with Zara Hassan. Um, it was one of my favorite episodes, man. She was absolutely amazing. There was nothing she doesn't know on that issue. We were talking about uh, refugees, immigration and asylum law in the UK and uh, why we've still got such a long way to go. The Nationality and Borders Bill, we covered the whole lot, man. Well, she did. I just stood there and listened. But it was one of my favorite episodes so far and she was absolutely brilliant. She just covered that whole issue from every angle inside and out she left no stone unturned so uh, please go back and listen to that episode if you haven't yet it's really really important massive shout out to everybody for supporting the podcast so far subscribing liking sharing leaving ratings and reviews and all that jazz and massive massive thanks to everybody for throwing some change into the paypal link as well it really uh, it really does mean a lot and helps me keep this podcast advert free because you know neither you nor i want to have to stop proceedings halfway through and have some cheesy advert kicking in you know what i mean so thanks to everybody for enabling me to keep this independent and keeping it free of adverts the link for that again is paypal.com slash paypal.me slash James Kennedy UK. Right, that's all the formalities out of the way. Let's get down to the fun stuff. Today, man, I have got a beast on the show. This guy is kick-ass. And the issue of the day today is drugs. We're going to be talking about the war on drugs, addiction, the penal system, and why our guest today believes that all drugs should be legalized. Now, before you throw your hands up in shock horror and think, okay, this, this episode isn't for me, this one really is for you. This is such an important issue that affects all of our lives in so many ways that we might not even realize. The issue of drugs connects to the issues of crime and public health, uh, what kind of society we'd like to have, how we take care of our sick and our suffering. And I think we're long overdue a collective catch-up on whether our current approach to drug enforcement has actually been working. So this is a broad subject which is fascinating and interesting in so many different ways. And we have got an absolute Spartan to come on the show and speak with us about it today. Trust me, you're going to enjoy this one. So strap in, sit back and enjoy the ride, man. Steve Rolls is a senior policy analyst at Transform, a charity that campaigns for a radical change to our country's drug policy. And it's a place where Steve has been working on this issue since 1998. Steve regularly appears on the mainstream TV and print news outlets. So we are privileged to have him on our humble show today. And I cannot wait to jump feet first into this issue with him. So Steve, thanks so much for being with us. How are you, man? Pretty good, kind of hot, but other than that, uh, I'm very well. Yeah, we are recording this, we should say, on the Tuesday. So it's the second day of what is supposed to be the hottest day in the history of the world ever. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, something like that. It certainly <laughs> feels like it. It was, it was, it was red alert yesterday, and I went out to Cardiff yesterday, and the clubs were packed. You know, they told everybody, don't go to work, don't go on the trains, don't go anywhere. <laughs> and I, I, it occurred to me that literally nothing will keep the British public out of the pubs second to, like, you know, a nuclear holocaust or something. Well, I mean, we're, 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 we're a nation of uh, druggophiles, whether they're legal or not. So, um. And I love that segue. That was, that was pretty slick. That was. <laughs> so you've cleverly steered us right into the issue of the chat today, which is, as I mentioned, the issue of drug regulation, drugs, addiction, the penal system, all that stuff. And you are the man to speak to on this issue. So I am going to step aside, give you the microphone and let you do your thing. So before we get started, could you give the listeners just a very brief overview of who you are and what it is that you do over at Transform? Right. So I'm Transform 
is a, I mean, we're a charity. Uh, we are based in the UK, but we work in the UK and internationally. Um, we have uh, been around for about t- nearly 25 years. And we do policy analysis um, around uh, the efficacy of our drug laws and our drug policies. And we advocate for reform to those drug laws and policies to try and get better outcomes. Um, and our analysis is very much the, the kind of uh, war on drugs approach, the prohibitionist approach, whatever you want to call it, the, pr- the, the sort of punitive paradigm um, where it, it's essentially punitive enforcement led approach to drugs um, has not worked. Uh, the idea of that whole approach was to use drug law enforcement to deter people from using drugs. So you have criminal penalties for drug possession and use. Um, and the idea being that that would stop people uh, using drugs. And you use enforcement directly against drug markets. So you, you would use enforcement to attack supply and production, um, both within this country and in, in places like Colombia and Afghanistan, where cocaine and uh and, and opiates like heroin come from. Yeah. Um, and look, looked at historically, we've had that policy for, for more than 50 years now. The, the Misuse of Drugs Act, which is the central piece of drug legislation in the UK, has been around for, it was 50th anniversary last year, actually. And, and prohibition can actually be traced back further than that. But even if you look at it as a, a 50-year project, um, for a policy that was designed to deter use and to restrict availability on, on drugs, it's clearly been a staggering failure. Um, for every one of those 50 years, drug use has, uh, globally has been has been rising. Uh, drug use in the UK is far higher than it was in 1971. I don't wow. think that would surprise anyone. Uh, you know, t- there's 25 times more people using heroin. There's 10 times more people using cannabis. We now have a whole raft of drugs that didn't even exist in 1971. Um, you know, MDMA use, ecstasy use went from zero effectively in about 1985 to several million people using it every weekend by the end of the 80s. So, wow. you know, as, as, as an approach to deter use or to prevent drug supply, it clearly doesn't work. Drugs are cheaper, purer, stronger, more available um, than ever before in the UK. So it, it, on its own terms, it doesn't work. And we have been very clear in that critique. Um, but it's worse than that. It's not that just that it doesn't work. It actually, it actually is worse than that. It empowers organized crime groups across yeah. the world. It fuels crime and violence. It makes risky drugs even more risky than they already are because people don't know how strong they are or whether they're actually what they're claimed to be. And they don't have any information on dosage and safety and harm reduction on the packaging. So, you know, on every front, um, it's fueling crime. It's fueling health harms. And it doesn't work on its own terms, and it's fabulously expensive. So we're, you know, we're hosing billions of pounds into this uh, policy response to get absolutely disastrous outcomes on on pretty much any metric you could choose. So part of our work is making that critique, just saying, look, the war on drugs doesn't work, and it hasn't worked for generations. So we need to have a rethink. So that's part of the work is the critique. Um, the flip side of that is uh, is the vision. So, you know, what would we do to replace if prohibition doesn't work? What do we do instead? And the kind of logical corollary is that we need to have uh, some kind of legally regulated market because the option is essentially you either leave the market with organized crime groups and unregulated street dealers or you bring it within the ambit of government and the state and you, you let responsible public health agencies 
regulate the market in ways that can reduce the harm it causes both to people who use drugs and to the wider community. Um, and the thinking there is not like drugs are great, let's legalize them. It's not a sort of pro-drugs position. Drugs are obviously risky, but it's, it's, a, it's a pragmatic position that deals with reality. And the reality is that millions of people in the UK and hundreds of millions of people around the world do choose to use drugs regardless of all the, uh, the, the messages from government, regardless yeah. of the law, regardless of the risks they face. They're using them anyway. Um, as as policymakers, we've got to deal with that reality. So it's a sort of it's a reality based policy, which is loads of people. There is a huge demand for drugs, and it will be met one way or another. So if we don't have a choice. Do we leave it in the hands of organised crime groups, or do we responsibly regulate it? Because there's no there's no third option in which that market disappears, or that demand for drugs somehow magically evaporates one morning. Um, demand for drugs exists, for better or worse, whether we like it or not. And we have a choice about how that demand is going to be met, whether it's responsible regulation from governments or whether it's organised crime groups and all the carnage and chaos we've seen over the last 50 years. So that's the essence of our position. Obviously, there's then a lot of detail we've done, a lot of detailed work we've done in terms of developing what those models like. You know, when we talk about legalised drugs, what do we mean? Is it different for different drugs? How do you regulate access? What products are we talking about? Where would the shops be? Yeah. How do you license them? And all, all of that kind of detail we've done for different drugs in different environments and produced a range of books and leaflets and so on that are all uh, freely available on our website. Um, and we use those as the basis for our advocacy work, um, which, you know, initially it was just working with, um, you know, the, the, the public and through the media. But as the debate has progressed over the last 20 years and, you know, the idea of legally regulating drug markets has moved from the kind of fringes into the mainstream, it's now started. It's now a thing that is actually happening around the world. So we're now working with governments in a kind of consultancy uh, role. So we're not no, we're not no longer just activists or advocates. We're actually consultants sitting down with governments and policymakers actually designing uh, designing legislation. Um, so things have moved on. Um, clearly, there's a long way to go. Most of the activity has been around cannabis stuff, but it right. is going beyond that now as well. And I'm sure we can talk about that. That was amazing. Yeah, you've already given us so much there already as to you know, the, clearly the, the current system doesn't work. And you've, uh, you've, you've, you've hinted at some of the solutions there as well, which we want to get into all of that. And I'm glad that you said that you were able to um, discuss with us some of the practicalities as to how a new model could actually look in reality. Mm. And I want to I cover all this stuff, man. I want to really lay out the case here as to why this is just uh, the model that you're going to be proposing is one that just makes much more sense. Because this is a difficult issue, man, because as soon as you, like, if you were to soundbite it, as they often do in, you know, in the newspapers and things, if you said, hey, I want to legalize all drugs, immediately most people, and probably rightly so, are going to, are going to pull back and say, well, hang on a second, drugs cause so much destruction and harm in people's lives and in society. Mm-hmm. Why would you recklessly just make these things legal? You know, there should be boundaries and resistances in place to, to, to minimize that damage and the exposure to these things. But that is not... It's not as simple as that, as you've clearly laid out. And that is not the solution that you're proposing in, in such a simplistic form either, is it? You know, what you're proposing, I think, will take the power out of the hands of these organized criminal cartels, which will obviously make a difference to the, 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 the types of crimes that we see on, on our streets. And it will bring the victims of addiction and substance abuse closer to the, the public health sure. aspect of, you know, treatment and rehabilitation and recovery rather than just simple punishment and then the cycle goes round and round yeah i mean i think james i think a good a good um just to help people 
think about it because I, I i think you're absolutely right instinctively if you say something like i want we want to legalize drugs um and people in their minds they, they associate drugs with all the chaos and harm and addiction and squalor and death and you know people have been watching breaking bad and narcos and um they've seen all those awful tabloid stories about sort of you know addiction and death and young people dying at festivals and all, all these hor- horrible things associated with drugs they're like why would you want to legalize that and it's kind of actually it's because of all that right. that we need to have a different approach it all of those bad things are happening under the current policy um and the current policy is not only not stopping those things happening it's making them worse and it's making them more likely so it is harder to deal with that what is essentially a public health and social policy issue it's much harder to deal with it um and and get the help to the people who need it and address the issues of crime and criminality when we are you know criminalizing the people we're trying to help and handing control of this multi-billion pound global market to the worst possible people yeah. i.e. yeah i mean you, you know your pablo escobars and yeah. your your kind of your, your cartel gangsters we 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 are what prohibition does, what the war on drugs does, it doesn't get rid of the drugs. It hands control to the worst possible people. Yeah. Um, and like I say, we're not, we're not, it's not a pro drug position. Drugs obviously are risky and are associated with a whole range of different uh, health risks and health harms. But the, 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 our point of view is that if you, if you have a public health approach, um, it enables you to address those harms in a more constructive, positive way. Than criminalise all, all the people who are, who are we're putting at risk. Most most of whom, I should say, are tend to be vulnerable people. I mean, people who tend to get become dependent or addicted on drugs are usually people who are, have other issues going on in their lives, whether it's mental health problems yeah. or, or, or or poverty or histories of abuse and other things. Um, these are vulnerable people. You know, the idea that we criminalise and stick them in jail um, is, is completely wrong-headed, and you know. It, but it's also very expensive, you know, treatment and public health approaches are cheaper. So, you know, even from a completely, you know, cold, uh, economic, prag- pragmatic point of view, um, prohibition of the war on drugs is very expensive and it doesn't work and imposes costs on everybody. Um, a public health approach is actually, uh, aside from anything else, more sort of compassionate or sort of social yeah. justice arguments. It's good value for money. You know, right. it delivers better outcomes for less cash. Well, people always like to hear that one. Um, so that's good. And also there are, you know, there are the social benefits as well. I mean, you don't need to necessarily know someone or be around someone that has a direct, um, substance abuse issue or addiction, but the effects of the current system are felt by all of us through society. Mm. It's very much a kind of, um, it can be a hidden hand, you know? So I'm interested to know, is there anywhere around the world that we can look to as an example where this new model of complete legalization of drugs across the board has actually been trialed? And if so, does that give us any data as yet as to whether it was successful, what worked, what didn't work, or anything that we can learn from? Okay, so the simple answer to that is no. Um, no, no country or jurisdiction has legalized all drugs. But what we are seeing is um, a wave of uh, cannabis legalization. So I guess unsurprisingly, cannabis has been the first kind of crack in the sort of prohibitionist dam, if you like. Um, I get, it's not surprising. Cannabis is the most widely used of all the illegal drugs. Um, it's associated with certain risks, particularly for, for, for younger people using re- regularly using the, the, the stronger types of cannabis particularly some mental health risks but but compared to most other drugs it's actually 
relatively, relatively lower risk. And I yeah. don't want to be accused of sort of defending cannabis, but in relative terms, you know, it's probably less risky than, than tobacco and alcohol, for example, yeah. which we're very familiar with in the legal sphere. I um, mean, it's less risky than cocaine and heroin and most of those sorts of drugs. Um, so, and it has a, so it has a different sort of cultural uh, operate. It, it occupies a slightly different cultural space in that it's not as threatening to the kind of um, uh, it, people don't find it as 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 threatening as some of the, so those other drugs because it's less risky and because it's more kind of culturally familiar and it's more widely used. So, unsurprisingly, cannabis has led the charge in terms of uh, regulation, and we're and we're seeing that happening all over the world now. So. Uh, Uruguay was the first country to legalize um, cannabis back in 2012-13. Uh, at the same time, Colorado and Washington states in the U.S. did it. Um, and that they've been followed by 18, there's 18 states in the U.S. now. So over a third of the entire U.S. population is living in a legal cannabis jurisdiction, including California, which yeah. is the same size, same size economy and population as the U.K. Um, Canada has legalized and regulated um, a number of Caribbean countries, including Jamaica, um, legalizations moving forward quite fast for cannabis in Colombia. Um, and then we've recently, we've seen some quite, in Mexico, um, a Supreme Court case, cannabis is legalized in, in Mexico, and they're, they're still trying to thrash out exactly how it's going to work, but that has happened. South Africa, similar, similarly, Thailand recently legalized cannabis. And now we've actually got this wave of cannabis legalization happening uh in europe so we've got germany malta luxembourg um the netherlands switzerland um are all in the process uh either have or in the process of establishing legal markets for adult use for not for non-medical use of cannabis so there's a it's a, there is an accelerating trend of cannabis regulation and i think uh, that's a good thing in itself uh there are lessons from that about how to do it well or how to do it less well uh, when the UK gets there or when other countries start to follow follow that trend. Um, but it's also opening up space for the wider debate. People are kind of saying, well, if we're, if we're going to legalise cannabis, why don't we legalise magic mushrooms? Or why yeah. don't we legalise MDMA? Or why don't we legalise something else? So it's creating a bit of space uh, for the wider debate because people are seeing that, you know, in these countries that have legalised cannabis, things have, you know, there hasn't been the sort of cannabis apocalypse that some people some of the kind of doom mongers were predicting. And in most places, it's actually been, generally speaking, fairly successful in terms of health and criminal justice outcomes and sort of in terms of, you know, spending resources for police. They've got more time to go and do other things. Um, less people are being criminalized. Uh, you know, the, the illegal market and the related problems are shrinking. And generally speaking, it's been a success. Now, it's easy if you want to go and find some some damning statistics to kind of trawl through and cherry pick some bad stats and say, oh, <laughs> yeah. but what about this and this and this? Now, no, no policy is perfect. This is a very new area. Some things are always going to go wrong. But, you know, we, we, we move on and we learn and we evolve. But generally speaking, the outcomes have been good. And I think that fact has now created an environment where not only is cannabis regulation a much easier thing to discuss in the UK, because you can go, well, look, they've done it in California, they've done it yeah. in Canada, they've done it in that blah, blah, blah. Um, it's also creating space to say, well, yeah, what about these other drugs? Because the same arguments apply. I mean, yes, those other drugs are generally more risky, but the same arguments apply. People are using them whether we like it or not. People are using them anyway. You know, big, uh, tough punitive enforcement isn't deterring use. It's just making things worse. Um, maybe a regulated market and a public health focus 
would um, reduce the harms, both the users and the wider community. So that 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 debate is now moving and expanding both geographically and within the issue to other drugs. So we're in a kind of sort of golden age, I think, of the drug policy reform debate where everything is kind of accelerating and ramping up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And has there been enough time yet to look at these places where which have recently changed, you know, their um their drug policy regarding cannabis? Has there been enough time to actually glean any information or data from those places? Uh, with regards to you know has there been an increase in usage or has there been a drop in associated crimes or anything like that is there anything we can learn from it at this point um well it's, it is like you say it's fairly early doors i mean the first con- the first jurisdictions were legalizing cannabis um uh, sort of about 10 years ago and often they would change the law and then they would take a couple of years to actually sort of open the first shops because you have to right. build your regulatory infrastructure you know yeah. you have to establish a kind of regulatory uh, body you have to sort of do set up the licensing there's actually it's actually quite a complicated technocratic sort of project um the first shops opened in colorado in 2014 uh the first shops opened didn't open in uh, uruguay actually until 2017 um canada it took about two years opened about three three or four years ago so yes we have some data but uh, uh and most of it looks looks pretty good um, and I can talk about that, but th- th- we have to also acknowledge that we are still very much in the rollout phase. Yeah. Um, or in, in most jurisdictions, we're still kind of rolling out the, the, this uh, regulatory legal market, um, and there, there is a there is inevitably a period of transition where people transition from the illegal market into the new licensed legal market because they may already have established dealers or yeah, growers right. or contacts and those markets those sort of legacy markets don't necessarily just disappear overnight right so there is a transition period so for example in the in, the, in canada after one year about a third of the market had moved to legal uh, supply and now after three years or over three years now about three and a half years we're about 55 56 57 percent of the market is now legally regulated. Wow. I mean, that does leave over 40% is still uh, illegal or un- unregulated. But, you know, my argument would be, look, there's a clear trajectory there. We're yeah. moving towards, you know, it's moving in a positive direction. Right. And 60, 60% legally regulated and taxed is better than 100% kind of gangster, as it were. Damn right. Yeah, um, so, right. so there's progress. In terms of levels of use, it's a good question. It's a, it's a question that always comes up. Surely if you legalize drugs, more people will use them. Yeah. Um, it's totally understandable risk. But if you actually look at what happens, I mean, because drugs are fairly uh, easily available anyway, I mean, anyone who wants to get cannabis in the UK, uh, it's just not that difficult. In fact, any drugs, I mean, you can get like, you know, WhatsApp menus of drugs and you just yeah. tap in uh, your requests and it'll be delivered on a moped yeah. within within half an hour, you know, quicker than a pizza arriving. Um, so it's not difficult to get drugs. The idea that drugs would suddenly become available if they were legal yeah. and they're not available now, it's just, a, it's just a misconception. Drugs are freely available now basically to anybody who wants them. Yes, there may be some minor inconveniences, but once you've, uh, you know, if, if you get an established dealer, which is not a very difficult thing to do, um, drugs become very, very easily available. And the, 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 the illegal market, if nothing else, has shown it's incredibly good at getting drugs to people who want them because they're so profitable. You know, there's money to be made there and organized crime groups are nothing if not entrepreneurial and they're very flexible and they're very, they're very good business people. Um, 
So, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's that's the important first thing to challenge. It's, it's not so much that if you legalize drugs, they would be more available. The question, the difference would be we would, we as in we, the regulators, the policymakers, we would be in charge of that availability. So we would start to be able to do things like things that we do with alcohol and tobacco and pharmaceutical drugs, for example. So you could have age access controls. You could say, okay, you can only buy cannabis if you're over 18 or over 20 or over 21 or whatever it is we decided. Um, you can say uh, the, the, the cannabis shops can only be open here, here and here, and they can't be near schools or they can't right. be near playgrounds or maybe they can't, they can only, it would be online retail only, for example. You, you right. could, we would get to make these decisions. Yeah. Um, you could determine o- opening hours. You could determine things like, are they allowed to market and advertise? And the, our answer to that would be, no, they're not. It, just like we banned alcohol, we banned tobacco advertising um, and branding on packaging. We think that something like legal cannabis shouldn't be able to advertise and market as a sort of lifestyle, you know, commodity. Yeah. Um, and we don't want cannabis brands sponsoring football teams like we have with alcohol and like we had with, amazingly, like we have with tobacco in the past. Yeah. <laughs> um, we don't want uh, cocaine brands sponsoring club nights and things or no. festivals or ecstasy brands. So you, you, you can just ban all those things. You just don't allow it. We've done that very successfully with tobacco. You don't see tobacco marketing or advertising anywhere. Um, we, we, we don't allow uh, pharmaceutical medicines to advertise to consumers. You know, we can do these things and we have done them. And there's, there's, you, you can learn from how we regulate lots of other things, lots of other risky products and activities. We actually regulate them pretty well. Uh, not necessarily as well as, our, as as we might for certain things. I don't think, for example, we regulate alcohol particularly well. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Were I in charge, if you made me king of the world, um, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't be allowing the, the, the level of advertising and sponsorship for alcohol that we see. Like for like sponsoring sports events and things, you know, yeah. like the Euros are sponsored by Heineken, I think, which is ridiculous. You know, you're associating a dangerous, highly addictive drug that kills thousands of people and, and, and deals all kinds of violence and, and social problems. You're allowing them to sponsor a major sports event that is watched by tens of millions of children. And, and I yeah. think that's absolutely ridiculous. Like Strongbow Cider sponsored the... The, the British Olympic team in Rio, you know, strong, such strongbow cider. <laughs> not, it's not even nice cider. <laughs> not even nice. If it had been nice cider, it might have been a bit more accommodating. But, <laughs> so, so, but you, you, so, so, but, but seriously, you know, you, you don't want that kind of thing to happen. So you put, you put controls on our advertising and marketing. You put controls on who has access to the market. You could control the price and the packaging. You can, you can insist that you could, you can mandate that you would have health warnings and dosage information and harm reduction information would be on the packaging, like when you buy uh, when you get over the counter drugs in a in a pharmacist. And in fact, you could have the sales um, model would be a bit more like a pharmacist. That the vendor who who you'd buy it off would be a trained individual who could give you advice right. about dosage and safety and right. um, drug services and uh, you know h- how to how to h- harm reduction. Yeah, they would say. Make sure you stay hydrated if you have this ecstasy pill or, you know, don't mix this cocaine with, uh, you know, alcohol and other stimulants and, or, you know, d- don't X, Y, Z. The kind of targeted health information that can genuinely reduce harm and reduce drug-related deaths could be 
mandated on the packaging uh, of the of the drugs themselves, and it would be related to the dosage of the drugs, which you would know because it was a legal product, unlike a, a random pill or powder you buy in a yeah. nightclub or something. Um, and the, the the vendor would be like a pharmacist trained to give you advice and guidance. Um, and in that way, you don't eliminate the risks of drugs because you never can. I mean, you know, everything involves a certain degree of risk, yeah. but you can manage and reduce it. So we would get less drug-related deaths. We would have less dependency. And when people did would get into problems with, with their drug use, and, that you know, inevitably that is still going to happen to some degree, they wouldn't be scared of seeking, asking for help or going to drug services because right. they were afraid of, you know, legal consequences because these things wouldn't be crimes anymore and they, yeah. sh- they should never have been crimes they're not elite they're, you, you can argue that drug use is reckless or stupid or foolhardy or immoral even but it's not a crime in the classic sense you know you, you know you, you you can do risky things uh, as an individual and a, as an adult you can make consenting choices to participate in risky risky activities um, and it's not a crime. You know, you can have unsafe sex. You can eat unhealthy food. You yeah. can do dangerous sports. We don't criminalize those things. You know, we, 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 and sex is actually a good analogy. So, you know, we, we, don't, we don't criminalize having sex without condoms. We encourage people to use condoms to avoid sexually transmitted diseases and unwanted pregnancies. Yeah. It's, but it's and like looking at young people and sex. You know, we don't say to young people, well, some people do say you shouldn't be having sex. We've got to deal with reality that young people are, are going to have sex with really anyway, or not. Yeah. And we encourage them to practice safe sex and so they don't get pregnant and STDs and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a pragmatic point of view. It's a, again, I come back to it. It's a, it's a, it's a pra- we're trying to deal with reality and be pragmatic here. Yeah, be you mature. can't get rid of drugs. Let's regulate them to try and make them safer for everybody. It makes so much sense, man. Honestly, I mean, anybody listening to this now, even even if they're of a completely opposing view, I'm sure they can see the sense and the logic of this. It just makes sense. I mean, you don't have to be a drug user yourself, or you know, you don't you don't have to be you know a liberal progressive or something like that. But this is just based on you know hard facts and practicality and and a knowledge of what doesn't work for for the intended aims and what clearly does. You know, and it's just a much more um, mature, compassionate, practical, you know, realistic and, and affordable approach to, to drug reform and drug regulation than the, the one that we've been currently dragging around for God knows how long. Yeah, and, I, and I, I, something I always say to people, people go, oh, no, I don't agree with that. I'm anti-drug. I'm like, well, you can, you can be completely anti-drug and still be in favour of uh, drug law reform. It's the two things aren't yeah. incompatible. You can think drug use is stupid. You can think drug, you know, people shouldn't use drugs, particularly young Doesn't people. Matter. Yeah. Um, but but still, but still acknowledge that what we're doing at the moment doesn't work, and a more pragmatic uh, uh, approach, including ending criminalisation of users and regulated markets, would would be better. You know, yeah. and you see, one of the things that one of the things that I think people don't realise, and I, I mentioned the money thing earlier, but we spend a lot of money fighting the war on drugs, uh, and you know, you talk about billions here and there for um you know different things there's a lot of debate given the the economic situation we're in at the moment about you know where are we going to find the money for to pay for you know the nhs or social care or education or all these things but we're spending about seven billion a year in this country a year fighting the war on drugs wow and that is money that uh you know is delivering dismal outcomes yeah. so we spend about seven million pounds a year uh fighting the war on drugs but that is creating billions more 
in costs in other in other areas. So drug related health problems, drug related right. addiction, drug related death, drug related crime. It, it places an enormous burden on all of society. Um, and, and so we're, we're spending money to create new costs and harm society. It, it makes no sense. And just a fraction of that seven billion, if we if we put it into, uh, you know, seven billion we're spending on stuff that we know doesn't work. Why don't we spend a small amount of that on stuff that we know does work? So right. things like effective treatment for people who have drug problems, yep. effective drug education for to, to so people understand the risks and make more sensible choices. You know, giving investing in young people so that they have cool stuff to do. Um, and they're less likely to get involved in problematic drug use in the first place. These aren't, there's no mystery here. This is all, you know, in the same way that the war on drugs is deeply unscientific and deeply, uh, you know, unevidence based. All the kind of public health interventions, treatment, harm reduction, prevention, education, those things, we know that they work. We know right. that they work and there's good evidence. So let's spend our money on doing that instead of fighting this endless, futile war on drugs. That just simply doesn't work. And it's not just it hasn't, doesn't work here. It's never worked anywhere. Right. Even in countries where they execute people and you get like ridiculous life sentences or public flogging like in, in uh, you know, Saudi Arabia or you get executed and, and or whipped in Singapore and death penalty in China and you know, brutal enforcement regimes. You know, tens of thousands of people killed in the drug war in the Philippines just in the last few years alone. Um extrajudicial murders you know just grim horrible horrible uh full-on you know not non-metaphorical war on drugs policies yeah. um they still have terrible drug problems so you know this whole idea that somehow if only we fought the drug war a bit harder if we ramped up our punishment all disappeared you know, flogged, yeah flogged a few more <laughs> cannabis users it would somehow all suddenly start it, w- it wouldn't we, we, right. there, there's countries they've gone super hardcore um and it, it, it they still have massive just as bad drug problem, arguably worse because of all the other things I say, it tends, it tends to make it worse. And of course, the people who end up being punished, and this is another really important point, um, it tends to be the more vulnerable or, or sort of socially and economically marginalised members of society. Right. So it, it, it tends to be people from socially deprived uh, communities. It tends to be young people, uh, women, LGBT people, uh, you know, black youth in particular, famously black black youth in the UK are grotesquely overrepresented in the criminal justice system in terms of drug enforcement. Yeah. They're, you're 10 times more likely to be stopped and searched if you're black in the UK. Yeah. Um, and once you're if you're arrested, once you're arrested, you're 10 times more likely to get um, uh, more punitive sanctions. So, you know, it, it's not, on, you know, on top of all of those other harms and costs, um, it, it, it's fueling, it, you know, it's it's a it's a path it's a it's a particularly acute conduit for institutional racism right. and disproportionate disproportionate policing so you know i could go on about all the problems and harms forever but that is a particularly acute one in the uk yeah. particularly in a, you know in in the cities dude you are on fire today man yeah sorry sorry <laughs> i'm ranting i'm ranting you're I'm ranting. riffing dude it's what you're doing you're preaching man jesus christ i'm and i'm loving it i'm looking at my questions and you were just smashing through them one at a time <laughs> okay <laughs> No, but I mean, pick, pick me up on it. If, you, if I'm not if I'm not being clear on anything, do pick me hey, up on any of these Hey, not at all, things. man, not at all. I do, you know, I do understand that, it, particularly for people who haven't 
you know, come to this issue in any detail. It, it is quite counterintuitive. I do get that. And I, I do have these conversations a lot. And, you know, to say to say to people who are, you know, can, who may have had like family members have problems with drugs or they yeah. may have lost people to drugs or they may have had drug problems themselves to then say, I want to legalize that particular drug that caused that harm to you. Yeah. It can really, you know, it can be, it's not surprising people push back against it, but when you try and explain it as, as, you know, dealing with reality, doing what we know works and, and, and stopping doing what we know makes everything worse. People do generally kind of come round to it, it yeah. even even for the more difficult, challenging ideas like like regulating some of the more dangerous drugs. And, and I'm up for talking about that as well, what that means in practice, because I think that is to, to people kind of go, yeah, cannabis, I kind of get that, but are you mad? Cocaine, heroin, yeah. are you mad? Yeah. Um, so I think it prob- might be worth having a little think about the talk about what that would mean in in practice as well. Definitely. I'm glad that you mentioned that because I, I did want to raise that with you at some point because we've spoken about, you know, recreational drug use. But, you know, I don't really think that is the problem, is it? I mean, people going out on the weekend and, you know, dropping some ecstasy tablets or, um, mm. you know, people you know smoking a few joints in the night or whatever, or even people going out on the weekend and doing a few lines of cocaine or whatever. These are not the problems, are they? When it becomes a problem is when addiction and substance abuse starts wrecking people's lives and the lives of their families and society around them. Yep. So how do the harder substances such as you know heroin and cocaine and the much more addictive and destructive substances like that factor into the new model that you're proposing? Right. So I think that's a, it's a really good question, which I kind of queued you up for. Um, <laughs> the, what we're talking about when we talk about regulating drugs we're not talking about all drugs being available in corner shops or all drugs being available in in the same form of uh regulated availability so for lower for for, for, for the lower risk drugs like cannabis it might be a bit more like alcohol and tobacco where you'd have licensed vendors uh like what you see like what we see now in in places like canada yeah um i don't like some of the more commercialized type cannabis uh, retail models that you see in some some u.s states but um essentially it would be a form of licensed retailing a bit more like alcohol and tobacco right um we propose for sort of what you might call medium risk drugs so drugs that can get are more likely to get people into problems but don't necessarily uh if they're used in more sort of more moderate uh ways things like ecstasy, cocaine, amphetamines, kind of the, uh, the LSD, the kind of party drugs or festival drugs that we, you were talking about. Some people use them problematically, but more commonly they're used fairly infrequently and moderately. Right. Um, we propose a kind of pharmacy model there. So it's kind of what I was talking about earlier, where you, you would have a, uh, a, a something a bit more like a pharmacy, where you would go in, you, it would be an over-the-counter retailing and the person who was selling it to you would be a trained individual like a pharmacist who would be trained to give you advice on health and dosage and, and harm reduction and safety and so on. Um, and you would get a, 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 a rationed amount for personal use of a drug in pharmaceutical packaging. There wouldn't be any marketing or uh, promotions or sponsorship or anything like that. So it would be, it would be a fairly functional uh, retail experience, a bit like buying you know, painkillers in a, in a, in a pharmacist, right. in, in a pharmacy. Now for the, for the most dangerous drugs, things like, um, injectable heroin, for example. Um, I think it's actually useful to point to the fact that 
people in the UK can already be prescribed. So people who are dependent on heroin or have had long, long histories of heroin use and have failed on substitute drugs like methadone, they can actually already be prescribed injectable heroin. Yeah. So that, that already happens in the UK. And uh, it happens within a medical model. So it doesn't need legalization as such because it it's comes under medicine. So th- these drugs aren't illegal. Cocaine, heroin, ketamine, amphetamines, they're all legal medical drugs already. So yeah. there is already legal, legal production of all of those drugs. Um, so you would get pharmaceutical heroin is prescribed to people who have been long-term heroin users and have failed in other treatment models. And that is effectively your legal heroin model, and it already exists. We don't actually need to legalize heroin. It's already legal, and right. it's already given to certain dependent users. Now, there are different models. Some people um, historically would just get it as a takeaway drug, and they could use it at home. Uh, there is a, a, a more, what's known kind of as a Swiss model, where you would go to a kind of clinic, you drop into a clinic twice a day, and you, you use the you use the heroin on site under medical supervision. So if you do have a problem, if you did have an overdose or you have a sort of some kind of adverse event, there'll be someone there to look after you. Now, that 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 is actually a a model. It's it, funnily enough, it's called the British system and it's been present in the UK since back in the since the 1920s in wow. the Wollaston community. Um, we've been prescribing heroin for almost 100 years in this country. So that is not a new idea at all and it has a very good evidence base for it because if you're prescribed heroin you're not using dirty heroin you're using heroin of unknown of of known strength and purity with clean needles so immediately you're not getting overdoses you're not getting infections you're not injecting weird drugs that you don't know what they are and you're not you're not getting hiv and hepatitis from sharing needles so a lot of the health problems that are you know in people's minds associated with heroin aren't actually anything to do with heroin they're to do with using illegal heroin right. in illegal environments. So d- shooting up in a dirty back street with a dirty needle using dirty drugs, you know, it's inevitably going to be very, very risky, whereas using uh, pharmaceutical heroin under medical supervision is actually very, very safe. Right. So again, it's not the drug in this case. I'm not saying heroin is, 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 isn't dangerous. It clearly is. It's very addictive. But a lot of the harms uh, associated with it are because it's you it's illegal and used in, in these kind of illegal environments so if you want, as soon as you prescribe it people stop dying uh, people stop getting uh, transmitting hiv and hepatitis um, people aren't using in the streets anymore they're not leaving uh, needles in playgrounds and, and, right. and on pavements and so on which i know i'm fully understandably upsets a lot of people um, and crucially because they're not having to raise loads of money to pay the overinflated price of illegal street heroin, they stop or they dramatically reduce their offending. So we know, for example, that people who use uh, heroin and crack um, are responsible for an, a disproportionate amount of um, acquisitive property crime. So street yeah. robberies, burglary, shoplifting, and so on. Basically to raise money to pay for their, to fuel their habit. Yeah. If you if they get their if they get their heroin on prescription, it's not actually a particularly expensive drug to manufacture. It's only only becomes really expensive through the profiteering of the illegal trade. If you give people those on prescriptions, they stop stealing stuff, or they stop committing crime or fraud or whatever it is to raise money to buy the heroin. Now, it's not ev- not every heroin user is is committing offences, but they're disproportionate. They are responsible for disproportionate as much as half of all kind of acquisitive property crime, according to some estimates. So, but when you prescribe them, they stop stealing stuff. So everybody 
everybody benefits. The community benefits. We get we 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 reduce street injecting and drug litter. We reduce acquisitive property crime. We reduce the health costs of dealing with HIV and hepatitis and overdoses and so on. Um, and that model exists now. So we don't even need to regulate. We don't even need to legalize heroin. It's already legal, and that is already happening now in the UK. And I think it's. It, it, and it's very successful. It's multiple countries around the world do it, and it's been around for decades and decades. So there's a very strong evidence base for giving giving legal heroin free to people who are addicted to heroin. Even again, it's you can you can understand why you say something like that. It's incredibly counterintuitive. What are you talking? Why would you give people heroin? Are you mad? But then you look at the outcomes in terms of reduced death, improved health, reduced crime, reduced drug litter, reduced street injecting. Um, improved community safety, you know, reduced profits to organised crime groups, and it's all good. And also, crucially, once you've got those people through the door and you're in contact with them regularly, in many cases every day, they're then in contact with health professionals yeah. who can give them access to other services. Right. But they can help them with their housing, they can help them with their employment, they can get them counselling for their mental health problems. And they actually statistically it's shown they're much more likely to then get into uh, long-term recovery and rehabilitation. So uh, ironically, giving people free heroin is actually a very good way of getting them off heroin in the longer term because you get them into contact with services. And when they're ready, because they've dealt with some of their other issues, um, they will then use those rehabilitation services. So, you know, it's one of those, again, counterintuitive things, give out free heroin, um, you actually have less people using heroin. And it's what they found in Switzerland. One of the things was that a lot of people who use heroin were user dealers. So they would sell right. heroin right. to fund their use. Yeah. And part of that part of that was about recruiting new people. Now, once you take those people out of the loop, they're no longer you don't no longer have these user dealers recruiting new users. And so you have a kind of aging population of heroin users and you don't get this kind of in, inflow of 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 uh, younger users. So you know, since they started prescribing heroin in Switzerland. The number of people using injecting heroin has gone right down. It's dropped by almost half. You know, and so that, this is what I mean about it being counterintuitive. Yeah. You start prescribing heroin, less people use heroin. And right. people are like, what? What? That doesn't make sense. But it's it is true and the, the data's all there. And 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 just on that particular one, we don't even need to have a debate around legalizing it because it's already legal and already happening in the UK. That's amazing, man. I did not know that. Uh, much to my shame, I should have. But it's this it's, it's Things get lost, you know, in amongst the noise of the spin and the misinformation and the arguing and the, and the you know, the, the right wing headlines. But that's actually a very enlightened and forward thinking approach. And to think that we've been doing that for 100 years is pretty awesome, I think. Yeah, well, and, and, and actually that, that, that same thinking is increasingly spreading to other drugs. So in the UK as well, we do also prescribe amphetamines to people who are dependent on amphetamines. Um, and one of the things that people do is they will try and prescribe uh, safer preparations. So if someone's, uh, you know, injecting amphetamines, you would give them uh, oral amphetamine pills instead. So you, you say, look, you, you, you can have the drug, but maybe have it in the safer preparation because injecting is intrinsically more more risky. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and there, there, there's their efforts. And sometimes you would give people substitute drugs. So if someone's um uh you know using methamphetamine you might say well look try these amphetamine sulfate tablets because they're a bit less potent and they're longer acting and you'll you'll be using it 
less frequently you won't have that kind of roller coaster of you know rush and then yeah. a crash and then another rush and a crash and um we do that with heroin as well so a lot of people who are dependent on heroin get prescribed methadone which is a, a sort of safer oral preparation yeah. so you so you stop them injecting but some people it doesn't work for those are the people who who tend to get prescribed um injectable heroin but the the the, the thinking is kind of spreading to other drugs so people mo- including stimulant drugs and and also things like benzodiazepines right. the people who are dependent on Things like benzodiazepines, like Valium, kind of downers like Valium. Yeah. Um, you, you prescribe them a certain amount, controlled dose, um, and then you can, you know, hopefully slowly wean them off it. But it stops them using uh, street benzodiazepines, which are things like Itazolam, these ones that aren't, aren't prescribed drugs, um, but are very potent and very dangerous and, you know, unknown potency, but very, very cheap. You know, you can get a great handful of these things for a fiver. You can get like 20 of these pills for a fiver. And each one of them will, you know, knock you out for sort of 14 hours. Um, you know, the, the people who are getting really badly into benzodiazepines can be prescribed them. And people who are, you know, misusing uh, crack, smoking crack, for example, you know, is there some way that they could be prescribed um, a, a substitute stimulant? So there's lots of different uh, threads to the kind of harm reduction, yeah. safe supply prescribing route. But generally, that's what we're talking about for the most risky drugs and drug preparations. You basically move it into more of a kind of supervised medical sphere um, rather than a more kind of conventional recreational retail model. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And exactly like you said, I mean, at that point, it becomes much more a conversation about how we treat people in our society who are substance addicted um rather than punishing them yeah it becomes a conversation about yeah, recovery help support rehabilitation and if they're getting their substances from a regulated certified professional you know health practitioner as such then they're already one step closer to the service that can actually give them the treatments and the help that they need to help them recover and rebuild their lives rather than being forced out of society and into the into the wilderness to kind of you know fend for themselves and we all know how that ends yeah well, i mean one of the one of the sort of um catchphrases of the reform movement is support don't punish right um that you 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 know you offer support and you st- you stop punishing people because it's a, it's a carrot and stick argument and unfortunately the, the stick just doesn't work you know the, the stick tends to end up being used to beat people who are already damaged you know people you're yeah. just hurting them more these yeah. are often vulnerable people with multiple other health and mental health history issues histories of abuse and so on Th- these are people who need support and the idea that you would then punish them or further marginalize them or even worse imprison them right you know put put damaged people with mental health problems in in a, in a cage for 23 hours a day um you know in a traumatic environment at prison people talk about prison being a great great place to get off drugs i mean that's just absolute rubbish absolute rubbish it's a terrible place to get off drugs because not only is it incredibly boring and traumatic and drugs is probably the thing you would want <laughs> in that kind of environment um, if you fill up a prison with, you know, people who are dependent on drugs and people who have a history of selling drugs, and then you, the, the, the prison is staffed by poorly paid, poorly motivated right. yeah. prison staff, don't be surprised that prisons are absolutely swimming with drugs. Right. And they are. I mean, everybody knows that and the, the, the data bears that out. 
Um, drugs are absolutely full of prisons, partly because <laughs> we fill them up with, with drug users and drug dealers. It's not surprising there's drugs in there. Well, even if you were like a small time user that just got caught up in a situation and ended up in prison, you, suddenly then you're connected to a much broader base of, you know, peers and suppliers and whatever, yeah. you know, you, you can come yeah, back out and, and even, and even worse. I mean, 14, there, there was a, a shocking statistic is that 14% of people who go into prison who don't have a drug dependency or drug addiction, they leave prison with one. Wow. So we're not, not, not only are we not curing or not curing, only you're not addressing people's problematic use, yeah. we're, we're fueling it. We're creating new populations of problematic drug users. Because, you know, if you're stuck in a, a tiny six by 10 cell for 23 hours a day, and someone says, here, do you want some drugs? It's like you, you would probably Hell yeah. <laughs> think about it because you'd be so bored out of your mind yeah. you know, and unstimulated. And, and you know, what, what would, yeah. So it, prison's just an app, is, is a, and it's, shockingly expensive you know it costs right. like forty five thousand pounds a year to put someone in prison you could put you could put someone up in the ritz hotel for less than that jesus and think how much think how much drug treatment and drug education and drug harm reduction you could fund with that 45 grand and that person will come out of prison and be more likely to use drugs and more likely to reoffend because they've got a criminal record and they right. carry around right. the stigma of a prison sentence with them. Yeah. It's really hard to get a job. It's really hard to get housing if you've got a criminal record. Right. So by criminalizing people in Britain in prison, we, we make problematic drug use and addiction and dependence um, and reoffending more likely, not less. It's just, it, it's, it, it's staggeringly stupid. It's just bewildering to me after all this time to see that we still carry on doing it. And I, it's just, that drugs seems to have got sucked into this populist law and order, tough on crime yeah. narrative. And, and there's a bit, it seems like there's a bit of a bidding war between the Tories and the Labour Party members. Who can be toughest on drugs? We're the party of law and order. Yeah. Um, and, and, and drugs just get sucked into that in a way it should not be. It just shouldn't be there. It's a health issue. I mean, like, there's a bigger issue about sentencing and prisons more broadly, but really we should not be putting vulnerable people with drug dependencies in prison at all ever i mean it's just the wrong place for them. that makes so much sense doesn't work it's ex it's expensive and completely counterproductive so yeah all of these things i think there's a growing awareness of all this by the way i, I think that if you look at the the polling and the the uh, opinion surveys you can see a clear trend that you know acknowledgement that the war on drugs doesn't work and it's counterproductive is growing that's that's sort of a majority almost a consensus view now um where there isn't a consensus is about what to do about that so there is still this small pocket of kind of reactionary commentators who say what we need to do is fight the war, drug war harder you know put longer sentences and more police and more busts and um get really tough and uh, you know there is there is still that uh viewpoint out there but i think it's kind of shriveling away because i think people see that that is part of the problem. It's not, it's not part of the solution. Yeah. So is there a feel for, has there been any research done into the public mood on this issue? Yeah, there has actually. I mean, you get, you, there's periodic opinion polls. It's quite difficult to compare them because often the wording is slightly different. Right. But you can see um, support for uh, decriminalization. And when I say decriminalization, I mean ending criminal sanctions for personal possession and use. So right. not this is different from legalization and regulation markets. Just, so this is just ending criminal sanctions for, for users. Um, that enjoys majority support now. It kind of depends how you ask the question and how you frame it and what terminology you use. Because if you just True. say decriminalize drugs, people often think you're talking about legalizing and regulating drug markets. We're not. Yeah. We're decriminalizing drugs 
it means ending criminal sanctions for people who use drugs. So right. if you're caught in possession, you could get a fine or a, um, a treatment assessment or something, but you won't get a criminal record. So it'd be dealt with more like a speeding offence or something. Right. Um, and support for that, if you frame it in those terms, is actually a majority. So people get that criminalising users is kind of stupid and counterproductive. Um, support for legalising cannabis is routinely um, at or near 50% now. So we're okay. approaching majority or, or have achieved majority support for legalising cannabis. And I think that's largely to do with the US and Canada and all these other countries yeah. that are doing it in Germany and everywhere. People see that. and It's, it's kind of normalised that debate and given it some kind of credibility and um, authority. So support for that's continued to grow. And in, in London, it's 63%. So in, in sort of the, in your more kind of metropolitan areas, I guess where levels of cannabis use are higher or where people are maybe a bit more liberal, yeah. Um, yeah. You, you see high, even higher levels of support. So we're, 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 we've got majority support for decriminalization of users. We've got at or approaching or, or in, in some cases – comfortably into majority support for legalizing cannabis um and there's also a broad consensus the war on drugs doesn't work so we, we are definitely getting there but if you then say should we legalize cocaine yes no you'll get about 15 percent right. yes right but if you said you know if, if you if or if you say should we legalize heroin you get like five percent you right. know hardly anyone thinks it but that's because people think you're talking about having it available in sainsbury's <laughs> whereas if you say should people who have failed in other forms of treatment uh, be available, a- able to access uh, pharmaceutical-grade heroin for use uh, in a clinical setting under medical supervision? Uh, and if you, you know, if you frame it in those slightly more nuanced terms and talk about heroin prescribing, you do get support for it. You do, do get majority support for it. Um, and so a lot of it is about how the questions are framed and how, how, we, how we talk about these things. If you just right. say legalized drugs – and people don't really know what you're talking about, their, 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 their misunderstandings and misconceptions will fill that void. Got you. And if people think you're talking about, you know, crack vending machines in primary schools, yeah. obviously they're going to push back on it. But if you talk about, you know, a, a tiered system of responsible regulation controlled by appropriate public health authorities, giving rationed amounts in unbranded packaging to uh, responsible adults, People start to get it, and people start to you know go, okay, I see that that it, that is preferable to you know um, Pablo Escobar and yeah. break, Breaking Bad and all the rest of it. Yeah. So we're definitely making progress, um, and you can see that is reflected in things like Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, had had kind of a cannabis reform as part of his election platform, and he won, you know, and he was up against. I can't remember what the guy's name, the Tory guy. He was very much against that, and you know, Sadiq Khan won it and it's it, it, for me it was a sign of the changing times that for him uh taking a cannabis reform position had become a political asset rather than a political liability Got you. yeah um so that to me that shows how the times are changing and i think you know it would be great if some le- if some politicians just showed leadership you know if they, yeah. they they actually made the case made the argument and some do you know fair play to the green party and the lib dems and some of the other smaller parties We've had pretty sensible positions on on some of these issues for a long time, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and they they are showing that leadership, but um, we're not seeing it from Labour or, or the Conservative Party, even though there are, you know, at, you know, public support amongst MPs for legalisation regulation of drugs uh, in both parties. 
um it's interesting actually that it's not it's not drug law reform isn't the preserve of left or right in any way there, there are supporters and opponents within labor and within the tories and there there are drug law reform all party sorry party you know conservative party drug law reform group there's a labor party drug law reform group a lib dem party drug law reform group right it hasn't seemed to have got sucked into that partisan politics or the kind of ugly culture wars crap that we we tend to dominate so much political debate and i'm very glad about that i i like the fact that it's cross-party even though some you know there's these there are some dreadful reactionary right-wing types who support legalizing drugs you know people like guido forks and nigel farage and fabricant and you know tom harwood and and, you know dellingpole some of these some of these people who, who on almost every other issue I violently disagree. Yeah. <laughs> and I think if in many cases, completely awful people, but they support legalizing drugs just in just the same way as, you know, people on the left and people in the center and everywhere else. So it's a good thing about it that um, people can understand the arguments across the political spectrum. Damn right. Well, I'm a member of the Green Party, so big up to the Greens. But um, I mean, it sounds like, you know, socially and in terms of the collective consciousness on this, we, we are moving in a much more progressive direction. Yeah. But as always, you know, the machinery of government is kind of like 100 years behind the rest of us. So are you um, confident and hopeful for the future or are we still stuck in a political gridlock that isn't likely to move anytime soon? Well, it's a tricky one. I mean, this government, they, I think I think many people in government, and certainly within the civil service and the home office and so on, and I deal with a lot of these people, they do understand the arguments. They understand the failings of the status quo. They've seen the evidence from other places around the world that some of these different types of reform and pragmatic public health-based responses deliver better outcomes, and they do get it. Um, but I think many of them, particularly in the current government, uh, and unfortunately the Labour opposition, um, who are sort of obviously in a kind of, I don't know, kind of bit of a, a bit of a law and order arms race with the Tories at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're terrified of the political consequences. They're terrified that, you know, in the consequence, in, in the context of, you know, if you've been investing in these drug war narratives, you know, about, about um, uh, you know, a war on drugs and drugs are bad and we must fight them. And, um, and it, it, they're terrified that in that context, um, but many of them have been investing in those narratives for, for decades. If you if you start to move away from them and start to talk about reform, you'll somehow be portrayed as weak or right. surrendering, Got waving the white flag in the war on drugs, and all the kind of narratives that politicians are very very afraid of. They're no no politician wants to be portrayed as weak. Yeah. Even I, I mean I don't think a reform position is weak at all. I think it sh- it's a sign of strength and confidence to do do the right thing because yeah. you think it will work work for your constituents and the people you represent. But um, they're afraid of the political consequences, even when they understand the arguments intellectually. Right. But I think if you look, you know, the fact that the polling is moving towards majority support for decriminalisation of cannabis, at least, um, has started to change it, change that equation. Um, and, and Sadiq Khan, as I said, it's a quite a good example that, you know, he, he took a reform platform because the polling showed that it was popular in London. Um, it would be great to have some leadership, but I think what we have to do really in the absence of that leadership, we have to show, we have to make the, keep making the arguments until public opinion and media opinion and, you know, key opinion, former voices and leading podcasts <laughs> um, start to uh, make that argument for us and change public opinion so that it becomes, you know, reform, a, ref, a, a pragmatic reform platform becomes a political asset rather than a political liability. And I think we are approaching 
that kind of tipping point now. Uh, I think, you know, I don't think in this government, I mean, this obviously, this is a very chaotic government and there's been COVID and Brexit and yeah. this government sort of collapsing around us. But, you know, I think the, the next government hopefully will be more stable, whether it's a Labour, Tory or coalition yeah. or something else. Um, and hopefully there will be more space once the kind of multiple crises of, of, of Brexit and COVID and cost of living hopefully have receded a bit. I mean, almost any other subject, any other policy area has struggled to get yeah, um, right. struggle for oxygen in the last couple of years just because of all these crazy things that have been going on. Um, but hopefully uh, when things settle down um, and people can look at where, where this public debate is up to and where the evidence base is pointing, um, I, 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 think we are, I think we're at a, a sort of, fork in the road and, and, and we're about to make a turn for the better. And so what can anybody listening to this now then that's been inspired by what you've said today, what can they do to get involved and help? I mean, is, is it simply a matter of lobbying your MP or is that really not enough? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing to do is to talk about it with your friends, with your families, with your, with your, with your professional networks. Um, just, just, just talk about it. Educate yourself. Do some reading. There's loads of great material on the Transform website. There's loads of other uh, NGOs who do and, and civil society groups who do really good stuff on this and produce a range of, um, of literature and discussion documents and essays and blogs. For, you know, and, it, and it, it's pitched to all different levels. There is all the very technical academic stuff, but there's also just the more discursive, uh, chatty material. Just educate yourself about about the issue and about the options. And yes, absolutely, go and talk to your MPs or your local councillors or any of your local policymakers. They are we pay their wages. They are there to serve us. They work for us. We should never forget it with your MP. You pay their wages. And their job is to represent you in Parliament, and you have an absolute right to go and talk to them about whatever the hell you like. Um, I would encourage you to talk to them about this issue, explain what it means to you, what you'd like to see, um, explain the problems you see with the status quo, um, and uh, you know, explain some of the things that you'd like to see them looking at. And you, you don't have to be like a, a massive world expert on this. By all means, point them to um, some of the transform resources. If you want to, you can ring up Transform and we, we can talk you, talk you through it. We can send you some literature. Um, we can even potentially join you and, and come with you to visit wow. your MP. So, wow. uh, you know, supporting, getting, engaging your policymakers is really, really important. I mean, there's lots of other things you can do. We, we have a range of different campaigning activities and advocacy activities. Um, we're also a charity. So, you know, financial support, donations, right. large or small are obviously also welcome. Um, and yeah, there's a bunch of projects campaigning av- advocacy stuff, and you can go and read about it on our website. And there, there are we're, we're not the only uh, organisation working in the space. Also, that there, there are brilliant organisations like Voltfast and Release and Drug Science and Beckley Foundation and International Drug Policy Consortium, and, and that's just in the UK. Harm Reduction International, International Network of People Who Use Drugs. Um, that they all have, they all occupy slightly different spaces within the debate, but they're all they're all, all very good, very active. Um, yeah, so just just get involved, Le- read more, learn more, speak to your local policymakers, support the uh, NGOs that are doing work that you think is cool, um, and 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 use us as a resource. The Transform website, transformdrugs.org, it's there as a resource for you um, to support you. Uh, you know. 
building up your knowledge and expertise in these issues and and supporting you in advocacy work with your with policymakers or, or, or your professional arena or anything else so do use us as a resource that's absolutely amazing and for anybody listening to that um who does want to get involved i'll be putting all of the links that um steve just mentioned into the podcast description text Fantastic. so whether you get the podcast on youtube or spotify or apple look through the episode notes and you'll get the links there I'll also give you guys a little reminder at the end as well, once we've let Steve go, as to where you can find out more about Steve and transforming their amazing cause. But Steve, speaking of letting you go, before I do that, there was one thing I wanted to mention at some point, which is the global impact of this, because there's a victim in this that we haven't talked about yet, which is the supplier countries, you know, the, the countries where these drugs are manufactured. Places such as Colombia and Afghanistan, where where these drugs such as cocaine and heroin are produced under such horrific and barbaric slave conditions. I mean, if you want to talk about a sweatshop product, then it doesn't get worse than that, you know. And not only are very, very poor people at the mercy of these disgraceful crimes cartels, but they're also the victim of our war on drugs. You know, they're the ones that are getting sprayed from airplanes with, you know, crop killing chemicals, you know, by the American government, etc. Whilst they're out there just trying to, you know, earn their daily keep for fear of getting their hand cut off if they don't or something. You know, it's pretty brutal out there. Um, so how would that factor into the model that you've been talking about today, where if we had a fully legalized system in the West where consumption mostly takes place, what would the knock-on effect be then for the producer countries in the third world where these products actually come from? Well, it's, uh, I'm really glad you asked that, James. It's a really good question. It's an incredibly important uh area of, of drug policy i think it's very easy to have a very parochial view that you know our, our that we need to sort our drug policy to deal with crime and addiction and whatnot in in the uk and forget that a large amount of the drugs that are consumed they do come from elsewhere around the world um and those areas are in many ways the problems that those areas face eclipse eclipse the problems that we face by a huge margin so in in mexico for example drug war related violence um, is causing is leading to more than ten thousand uh, murders, violent deaths a month. What a month! Jesus. Not not a year, a month. Christ. Um, and and that's just one country. <laughs> you know, okay, a particularly bad one on the front line of the war on drugs. Um, and it's not that's not just the UK. Obviously, most of the drugs that are going through uh, Mexico are transiting into North America or being produced in Mexico are going to North America. But you know that the, the the war on drugs is very much a non metaphorical. Uh, war in those countries, places like Colombia, you have millions of people displaced. You have, you know, uh, cartels uh, dominating and uh, dominating entire regions and undermining good governance and security and fueling violence and conflict um, and you know civil wars and uh, just total chaos. And yeah. places like um, uh, Afghanistan, as you say, you know, the opium economy has is, is, is funded all kinds of militias and, and terrorist groups and. Uh, violence and instability and insecurity uh, and, and and it's not just in the producer countries it's in the transit countries as well yeah, so yeah. that the drugs coming from latin america to europe yeah. a lot of them transit through west africa right um places like guinea bissau and those th- th- these are very weak uh, weak state uh, infrastructure um very vulnerable countries economically vulnerable anyway and they've been absolutely devastated by the illegal drug economy so Yes, absolutely. When we think about the harms of our drug policies, we have to think about the wider international impacts and how awful they are. 
we also need to think about those places when we come to the reform agenda, because what we don't want to do, because one, well, one of the things that I think it's important to point, point out is that those drug economies, it's not all Pablo Escobar people. Most of the people working in those in drug production transit are uh, poor people who, who have got very few uh, economic options. So yeah. they're often displaced people, they're migrants, they're socially and economically marginalised people. And when we reform our drugs, we can't just ignore them and hang them out to dry. We have to find ways to build a kind of peace process, if you like, kind of, that has some kind of economic reconstruction in it. And we, look, we need to look at sustainable development for those communities and help those people who have uh, use illegal drug markets as a sort of survival economy, a form of, uh, you know, economic uh, survival. We need to we need to look after those people as well. So we, we have to have a kind of development dimension built into our drug law reform program so that, that the millions of people who are involved in illegal drug production are not just abandoned because yeah. they're not all, all Pablo Escobar's. Many of them are poor, displaced, migrant, um, you know, marginalized communities who, who who deserve our attention as well. But I think you're, you're absolutely right that, that the harms of the war on drugs impact on those places even, even more negatively than they do uh, for us in the UK. And it's absolutely right that we think about them in terms of the harms of our current policy, but also in terms of we think about them when we get to the reform process as well. Well, I think if the product that they're producing was it was a legal product and didn't have to come through these criminal networks i think that would have a knock-on effect down to the whole chain wouldn't it because it's only the same as what we do with chocolate or coffee or anything like that you know i mean i mean occasionally i have that when i've been talking about the idea of a legal cocaine market people say ha 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 you want organic fair trade trade. trade, and i'm (laughs) I'm like yes i do yeah yeah what kind what kind do you want yeah so i'm like yeah if that's if it's if it's organic fair trade cocaine or chemically polluted uh, you know, uh, unfairly traded gangster cocaine. I think yeah. I'll take the first first one. Thanks. Yeah. And you know, it's and, and the debate is happening. This debate is happening around the world. There, there is a bill in the Colombian Senate now, and it's something that we've been working on, uh, being debated in the C- Colombian Senate to have a legal coca leaf market. But all coca leaf is the, the the leaf that cocaine is extracted from. But also to have a legal a pilot legal cocaine market in Colombia. They are debating it. So. It's not just a sort of fantasy anymore. It, it, it's, it's, these are ideas that are being debated in uh, national legislations. So cocaine legalization is being proposed and debated in the Colombian Senate right now. That's amazing. Um, and it, it, may not, it may not pass in its current form, but it shows how far the debates come that it's, you know, and how bad things are, that, that they are, they've got to the point where that is actually seriously being debated in, in, in national governments around the world. So. Yeah. I think there's room for optimism. You know, like the, the, the debate is progressing. It feels like it's accelerating. I think people's understanding of the options and the, the costs of the status quo are <clears throat> increasing. I think civil society and organisations like Transform around the world have had a big role in that. But yeah. it's now moving from these kind of civil society advocacy. It's moving into mainstream politics now, you know, and we are seeing it. And I think we, we will see those changes sooner than people think in the UK. Um, and if you want to see them happening around the world, just take a look. You know, we've got five or six Europe, EU countries are legalizing cannabis. They're debating MDMA legalization in the Netherlands. Yep. They're debating regulated cocaine markets in Colombia. They're, de- they're debating, well, they, they've implemented uh, legal psychedelic plant access in a number of US states. So 
it's not just happening with cannabis. It's, it's going beyond that. And generally, all the outcomes are pretty good. You know, you can scrape around and find some cherry picks and bad outcomes if you like. But on the whole, things are getting better where they're adopting these policies. And that, that can only uh, bode well for the future as well. Amen. And Steve, on that note, I promise I will let you go now. <laughs> Mate, thank you so much. That was a brilliant chat. You answered everything that I was hoping to talk about and more. So thank you so, so much for giving us your time. Thanks for everything you've been doing. I can't believe you've been doing this since 1998 and you still got as much energy and fight in you as I'm guessing you did when you started. So that's amazing. And I'm sure that one day this is going to happen. So I'm sure that everybody listening to this is going to be fired up and want to get involved now. So thanks for, for rallying even more troops. And uh, thanks for giving us all this info today, which we can go and check out and get involved with. So on that note, I promise I am now going to let you get out of the sweat box. <laughs> because man i'm melting as well no thanks a lot james it's been a real pleasure and um yeah if anyone wants to follow up just check out the transform website uh and feel free to contact me or or the organization and um we can help you get stuck in you heard the man get on it get over there get stuck in and let's make this happen okay steve thanks again brother it's great to see you and best wishes with everything and we'll catch you again really soon thank you man great cheers Jesus Christ, I was not expecting that. That dude literally knows everything on this issue, man. If you are still unconvinced after listening to that, then I don't know what's going to help you. Legalizing drugs, man, it seems to make sense whichever way you look at it. You know, this is just a mature and practical fact-based solution that benefits everybody and will make society better for all of us. And anything that takes power out of the hands of violent macho criminal gangs on our streets and the fields of Colombia, I'm all for that. Now, you can hear the, the whizzing in the background. That is my computer having a literal meltdown because I am stuck indoors. I got the windows closed because of the noise. You know, I want to keep the noise down for the recording and everything. Been in here now for about two hours chatting to Steve, and I am absolutely ringing of sweat. We are, we're having the middle of a heat wave right now. It's, they had a red warning yesterday. Um, <laughs> it's the highest temperature we've ever had on record in the history of the earth or something today. And here I am, both me and my computer are dying, a smelly, sweaty, whizzing, loud worrying death right now so i'm gonna get out of here you don't need me to riff and ramble now about what steve's just said the, the man just made the case clear get on it get involved get yourself over to transformdrugs.org which is their website and check out all of the amazing info and links they've got there there's also a donate link because uh, as steve said you know they are a charity so they, you know they they rely on donations from kind folks such as yourself so get involved in that and they are on twitter at transform drugs so you can follow them there for updates as well I hope you've all been enjoying the uh, the beginnings of our forthcoming climate extinction, otherwise known as summertime. And I will see you guys next week for another episode. Make sure to subscribe, leave a rating, leave a review, leave your thoughts, leave your comments, call me some names, do whatever you got to do. And I will see you next week. Take care of yourselves. Love you loads. See you guys.